This is Eric Zolke of the Population Reference Bureau. Today I'm talking with Dr. Alan Garber about research on cost effectiveness and its importance to healthcare reform. Dr. Alan Garber is the Henry J. Kaiser Jr. Professor at Stanford University, where he is also a professor of medicine, a professor of economics, health research, and policy, and of economics in the Graduate School of Business. He has been director of both the university's Center for Health Policy and the Center for Primary Care and Outcomes Research at the School of Medicine since their founding. Dr. Garber is a staff physician at the Veterans Affairs Palo Alto Healthcare System, associate director of the VA Center for Healthcare Evaluation, and research associate of the National Bureau of Economic Research, or MBER. He was the founding director of the healthcare program of the MBER, a position he held for 19 years. Uh, Welcome, Dr. Garber. Thank you for taking the time to talk today. Thank you, Eric. It's a pleasure to be with you. So what is comparative effectiveness research, and how is it different from other types of research or other types of medical research? Comparative effectiveness research has been described in many ways, but I think the most pithy person uh, is attributed to Gail Walensky, a former um, head of the uh, Healthcare Financing Administration, who described it as finding out what works best for which people at a, and under which circumstances or words to that effect. And basically, the name says everything. It's comparative. And that really means looking at different possible approaches to care that doctors and patients would really consider. And most of the time, that means you won't be comparing, say, a drug to a placebo or a sugar pill. It will be choosing among a number of promising alternatives. And interestingly, a lot of clinical research, at least the highest quality clinical research, has been uh, conducted for the purposes of securing FDA approval for a drug. And the standards used in those kinds of studies are quite a bit different because there very often you really are asking, is this drug better than nothing or a sugar pill? Here we want to know whether, for example, if you have atrial fibrillation, it's better being treated with a drug with an invasive procedure or just left untreated in some cases. So it has a somewhat different orientation, and the target audience is different because this research is not designed to inform regulators. It's designed to help doctors, hospitals, patients make better decisions. I see. And how has comparative effectiveness research been incorporated into recent health legislation? What are its implications? The Affordable Care Act includes the creation of an institute called the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, which actually will be a private entity, or is a private entity because it's already been formed, that will be funded by the federal government based on what amounts to essentially a user fee or tax on um, health insurance. And when it's fully up and running, it will be bringing in around $500 million in revenue each year. It will be charged with funding research of the kind that we just discussed, comparative effectiveness research. But part of its job will be to coordinate with federal agencies and other entities that fund such research already. So it's not as though there will only be $500 million per year total. It's an incremental $500 million in addition to other programs that are ongoing. That's the most important uh, part of the legislation that concerns comparative effectiveness research. But there is language that describes how such research might or might not be used by the federal government. Uh, And it's quite clear, though, 
that this is supposed to provide a very strong information-based foundation for making better decisions about health policy as well as individual clinical care. What other key features of the health care reform bill are intended to control costs and how likely are they to succeed? There are several provisions in the law that are intended to control costs, and some of them have received more attention than others. One that's very indirect is the creation of the Center for Innovation in the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS. And the Center for Innovation is getting fairly generous funding, at least compared to historical levels of funding, for innovative approaches to payment for Medicare finance services, for example, and to the organization of care. The specific agenda of the Center for Innovation has not been fully defined yet, but what we expect is that it will jumpstart various promising approaches to controlling the cost of care and raising its quality, for example, by um, developing mechanisms to pay doctors and hospitals more if they keep patients healthy and thriving rather than just paying them on the basis of units of service. So you would expect to see, if this is successful, some improvement in the quality of care delivered to Medicare beneficiaries, for example, along with the reduction in expenditures. Other features include the creation of the Independent Payment Advisory Board, which is intended to make recommendations that would lead to reductions in Medicare expenditures under certain conditions, uh, that is, if Medicare expenditures rise too rapidly in the future. Uh, And also, there's a, a wide variety of financing features that are intended to control costs. One of the the features that won't go into effect for a long time but already seems to be influencing decisions is the excise tax on high-cost health plans. And this is a tax that will kick in if uh, a health insurance premium, in essence, is above a certain level, which is specified in the law, and it goes into effect uh, about seven years, seven to eight years in the future. And this is intended to deter overutilization of health care by, um, by just making it costly to buy particularly generous health insurance plans. So those are just some examples, and as you can imagine from those descriptions, they're controversial. They've come under attack uh, already, uh, and there was considerable controversy at the time the legislation was being debated. But it goes to show how difficult it is to come up with concrete plans to restrain the growth in health expenditures because whenever you do something to control expenditures, somebody will feel that their interests are not being met. And just finally, I'd like to ask, to what extent do different cost control measures affect various populations differently? For example, will some affect children or the elderly more? The legislation is sufficiently complex that I'm not certain that I know of all the ramifications for each population group. But what's interesting is the reaction to the features designed to lower the rate of growth of Medicare expenditures. So that's a feature that pretty much affects only the elderly because there are a few other groups that are included in Medicare. And uh, one of the ways that the bill lowered expenditures is to change the formula that's used to make payments to providers increase in the future. And generally speaking, what this means is that provider payments will grow at a lower rate. There is the possibility if 
too rigorous a policy to control Medicare expenditures were put into effect, that access to care might be reduced. For example, if, patient, if physicians can earn three or four times as much for offering a service to a commercially insured patient as they can earn from uh, treating a Medicare beneficiary, they are going to be much more willing to see the commercial patients than the, uh, than the Medicare patients. And there is a real fear, therefore, that any policy that is too aggressive in controlling Medicare expenditures will make it harder for Medicare beneficiaries to find physicians who are willing to see them. Mm. So there's always that risk uh, going forward. Now, there are other kinds of populations who are different, differentially affected by other features of the legislation. It's clear that one of the intents is to improve care for the underinsured and the uninsured and people who are indigent generally, and there is a wide range of features designed to, for example, prevent illness across the population, but especially among people who currently don't get very much care or don't get adequate care. And, um, and, and a wide range of features that are, are simply designed to extend insurance to people who typically get their care, if they get it at all, in an emergency room rather than in a doctor's office. So uh, a lot of the, the intent of the legislation is really to make health care better for the people who are most in need today. Well, thank you very much again, Dr. Garber, and we'll be following this issue as we continue. Great. Well, thank you. A pleasure to discuss this with you.